Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Man, I remember 2022 like it was just yesterday. Got a few chuckles out of that one. That's why I don't do dad jokes too often. Uh, if you would, raise your hands uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, and uh, we will get one to you. And if you don't have one at home or work or wherever, uh, we invite you to keep the one that uh, we hand you as a gift uh, so that you may read it daily and keep it near to your heart. Dr. James White said, Church history has repeatedly and clearly proven one thing. Once the highest view of Scripture is abandoned by any theologian, group, denomination, or church, the downhill slide in both its theology and practice is inevitable. So, uh, yeah, if you would, turn your Bibles then to Luke chapter 1. Um, I am praying that everyone here has just the most wildly fantastic 2023 possible. Um, I can see that uh, a lot of people did stay up late <laughs> last night. Um, it was fun. And some of us may be praying for, is anybody praying for the same New Year miracle that I'm praying for? The New York Jets are playing in Seattle tonight and this afternoon and I, yeah. There's still a chance. There's still a chance. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking of what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house where whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whatever you wherever you enter a town and they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, verse 17. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not reject 
or rather do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our good and faithful Father, thank you for this morning that you've given that we may worship you and hear your voice. Lord, our ears are open. We are ready to receive instruction and to obey you. Open our hearts, we pray. God, give us the character that you would have uh, uh, your disciples to embody. Empower us to carry out your mission to the world. Help us to patiently serve you rightly, not to skip steps and jump jump ahead, but to be first at your feet in prayer in all that we do. Thank you, O God, for that which we have to rejoice over, that Jesus came in a manger and that he died a sinner's death so that we might receive the promise of eternal life in your kingdom forever. And so we give this time over to you to open our hearts to your voice and to be filled with your Holy Spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What does biblical, what does biblical outreach look like? This is something that I feel like that most of my 25-ish years in ministry, I have gotten wrong. How do we move forward in the mission that God has called us to, this great commission to evangelize the world around us? Well, there are countless methods and strategies. Uh, you know, there are the crus- crusade-style evangelism, you know, your Billy Grahams, your Greg Lorries, and those types. You've got personal evangelism I've found to be most effective in my life where you build relationships over a long period of time and people come eventually to know Jesus. Um, and there are so many others. But this morning we're going to hit on a few principles that I think uh, we need to keep in mind for every method of evangelism. In about two, 2002, I left my position as a youth pastor, and I moved to downtown Denver to help a friend of mine with his church planting efforts. His family had purposefully lived in the, uh, his family and I both had, had uh, purposefully lived in the Cur- Curtis Park uh, section of the Five Points neighborhood. Uh, if you ever heard of it, that was the rough part of town. Um, we lived about three blocks from each other, and each of us had experienced shootings right behind our apartments on different blocks. Um, That's the way it was. Well, well, Denver, they had been working to revitalize the neighborhood, and um, uh, they had bulldozed the uh, projects and built mixed income housing, and they were giving incentives for people to come and, and buy and restore some of the old Victorian homes that were there and historical historical houses, and so along with the crack dealers and the gang members, the gay community was buying up all these run-down Victorian homes and beautifully restoring them, and, and their art and their gardens were magnificent, and so suffice it to say, I was a fish out of water, um, and, and one of our regulars at the uh, ministry that we are, the church we were kind of starting there was, uh, it was a homeless guy with AIDS who, who uh, would sleep on the couch of an OG named Poppy, whose house was always full of drugs and prostitutes. And so when it was too cold to sleep on the sidewalk, this guy would sleep there. And uh, the two men that lived next door to me were more than roommates. Uh, and the, the coffee shop that we frequented for meetings and, and other things was owned by a very obvious gay couple. 
And so I knew that this was uh, deep in the trenches of this Denver mission field. Uh, the problem was is that I had trouble getting past all the sin that was around me um, and that was in my face constantly to the point that I didn't even see my own sin. Like, that's all I would think about. And I started asking God how I was to show these, all these heathens uh, their sin and get them to, the re- to repent. And then God basically revealed to me that I had no business doing that yet. Uh, I, I hadn't earned their trust. In, in, in this case, I lived among them. There was no relationship yet, though, and I had, I had to completely reevaluate what evangelism was in that context. God showed me through prayer and through the scriptures that my job was to live out the gospel as I built those friendships and that the Holy Spirit is way better at his job than I am. And so opportunities to call out sin ultimately would present themselves in God's timing and that he would equip me to do so only then. I learned a lot of hard lessons in Denver. And then I came back to California where I continued to work as an electrician to fund ministry. Um, But looking back, even then I was clueless about evangelism. And I would take a a lot of time, or it would take rather a lot of time praying and reading the scriptures and learning through experience and to even really begin the grasp of what it means to serve in God's great commission to us. Well, in 2008, the market collapsed, and I found myself without work. So I ended up at a big box hardware store working as an electrical specialist. One young man who I worked with was the most flamboyantly outrageous gay man I had ever met. He would be, this guy would be like running around after the lights going out and the, and the customers were gone and were cleaning up. He would be, you could hear him across the store singing Christina Aguilera songs at the top of his lungs. Um, it was just, just <laughs> interesting. He was also one of the friendliest people who worked at that store. Actually, one of the friendliest people I've ever met. Just a nice guy and I'm not sure if I was as obvious as he was about who I was, uh, but it didn't take long to figure it out. And, and some of the people in the store had this like weird superstition about being in the break room with a pastor. And so they'd either take break at different times and be like, Jeff's here, we can't cuss and talk about our lives now. Like, you know, others had the idea that they could shock me with how bad they are. Like, I worked at construction. I saw every twisted and depraved fantasy expressed in Sharpie on the walls of the porta-potties. You can't shock me, okay? But uh, what I realized was that they were all watching me. And while they were all worried about how I might judge them, they were judging every little thing that I did. About two or three years into my retail career, this flamboyant gay man and I had become friends and one day um, we were the only two people in the break room and he approached me real nervously and said we're all alone in here and I have a question for you Jeff and immediately it popped in my mind I am a happily married man to a beautiful woman (laughs) but (laughs) I held that Um, I asked what was on his mind, and he, he said that he knew who I was and, and what I was about, and he assumed that I knew what he was all about. 
And then he continued setting the question up by explaining that he grew up in a Christian home uh, with people that uh, were very active Christians. I think he even went to a Christian school for part of his upbringing. And, and he then told me that when he came out as gay, they all seemed to go out of their way to shame and condemn him and that although he loves his family, he no longer is close to them and can't speak with them honestly. And then he laid down the hammer. You're so nice to me all the time, Jeff. And I'm just wondering what you think of my lifestyle. And I have to be honest, I did not want to answer that question. But I was honest. I started out with the issue of sin in the garden that corrupted all of humanity. And then I went on to explain that God's idea of sin and man's idea of sin are often two very different things. That there are sins that both God and society condemn, like, you know, murder, um, abusing children, things like that. Um, the Bible and society all agree. Eh, we all agree we shouldn't do those things, right? Uh, then there are things that society frowns upon, um, but the Bible doesn't really say anything about it. It can allow one way or the other. Like, for example, um, much of uh, the society worldwide, maybe not so much in America, but around the world has some opposition to regular people having certain weapons, but the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. It allows for it or it allows us to avoid it. Um, but then there are other places um, where uh, much of society um, has opposition to something that the Bible commands us to do or not to do. For example, evangelism. Um, society frowns on any type of proselytizing most of the time, um, but we are commanded to evangelize. And, and then there are things which the Bible forbids outright, but society protects. In this case, acting on homosexual desires. We can read about that in Deuteronomy. We can read about that in First, Thess uh, First Corinthians and, and in Romans and several other places. I explained that we often cannot help the way that we feel and that while a sinful desire might be evidence of our sinfulness or our sin nature, it may not actually become sin until it's entertained or acted upon. So I went on to say that our society doesn't even affirm all sexual appetites. For example, pedophilia, still a societal sin and also something that the Bible would protect children from. Uh, I told him that I believe the, in the Bible and that because I believe God's word, that I believe that men engaging in intimacy with men and women engaging in that kind of intimacy with other women is sin and that all sin leads to eternal punishment and hell. But then I finished by sharing that we have all sinned and that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for that sin so that if we repent or we turn from that sin, we might be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life in heaven with our loving God. And as we wrapped up our conversation, I made sure to tell him that I valued our friendship and that I hoped that I was not unnecessarily offensive. And he told me that in all of his years being a gay man, I was the only person who had ever been able to explain that in a way that didn't offend him. And I've thought about that encounter a lot over the years, and I've come to the conclusion that the reason that he was able to receive that without offense isn't so much because of what I said or how I said it. 
but it was because I was his friend. He was able to see the heart behind it, and that only came because I had invested in being a friend with him. The, the gospel is communicated in more than just words. And, and I can say that certainly because I've used that same approach with other people that have just out of the blue asked me this question and offended plenty of people with that. And I think it's because I had spent time praying. I was humble. I was respectful. I had, I had peace with this, this gay man. I was able to share the gospel with him in a way that he would consider it. And so I, I consider that a win, and I rejoice in it. And I have to be humble and admit that that's one of the very few encounters that I've actually done well with, um, and that it's only Christ who could have equipped me for it in the first place anyway. So I, went to, I want to lay down some key principles for evangelism so that we can all be a part of these transformative moments, whether it's a one-time encounter or a long-term relationship. And so let's dig in to our passage in Luke here. Starting in verse 1, it says, After the Lord had appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go, and he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We start with the context. Chapter 9. We start with Jesus sending out 12 in a, in a very similar message that he sent out these 70, or similar mission rather than he sent out these 72. Um, similar circumstances. We see Jesus' reputation growing. People are debating his identity. Jesus also begins to foretell about his, his arrest and his being beaten and, and crucified and, and being raised from the dead and indicating that true followers of his will suffer uh, similar things. And, and he healed a demon-possessed boy, and then he deals with the disciples uh, arguing uh, which one of them was greater, to which he said, the least will be greatest. And so suffice it to say, these 72 that are being sent had been clearly warned about the cost of discipleship. One other thing to notice here is that Jesus is called Lord here by Luke. And that's very significant. So just like these disciples were to go ahead of Jesus preaching before he came, we also have the promise that Jesus is coming back. Our Lord is returning, and we have a mission to carry out until he gets here. So they sent out two by two, but notice he doesn't just send them out to preach. The preaching actually doesn't come until way later in the text. There are actually a few steps that they must take before they're ready to proclaim the good news. In verse 2, we often memorize that first part. Some of us have it memorized, right? But we have no idea what the rest of the passage says, right? The harvest is plenty, but the label, plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we repeat that. But it's not, a, do you realize that's not even the main point of that verse? That's, that's just the, the reason for the command that follows. This is what it says. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. A lot of times we, what we do is we quote, just quote this first part from memory because we haven't memorized it all. 
And, and then we'd be enlisting off all the things we need to be doing because of it. We need to be evangelizing. We need to be out the, there denying our needs and desires in order to serve God. We need to be willing to sell all we have and give to the poor. And we need to take up our cross and follow him. And all of those things are very good and biblical things, but they're not at all what Jesus is getting at here. We would have to read those things into the text, and that's called eisegesis, and we don't do eisegesis at IBC because we're the Bible church, and we draw from the Bible what it says, not read into it something. And so we, we don't try to make it say something it doesn't actually say. That said, evangelism, generosity, sacrifice, those are all good biblical Christian values that we should be doing. But what this verse is saying is that we need to do is to pray. To pray for laborers. In English, it might make more sense to read it like this. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. I may have made a few people uncomfortable here. Don't worry. There's more to the mission. We're going to get to it. I'm not promoting laziness. Uh, but step one in this mission is pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. And as part of the first step, Jesus is saying that we are pray, to pray earnestly to whom? To the Lord of the harvest. Now, Luke's already identified Jesus as the Lord. So we can see this text as being uh, one that affirms the Lordship of Christ, which means that Jesus can hear and he can receive prayer. David Garland said, the high Christology is implicit in this account and should not be missed. This all deals with recognizing that the first part of any command that we're given by the Lord Jesus is prayer. Thabiti Aniabwil said, the first great work of evangelism is to be done on our knees in prayer. David Garland said, the disciples are charged to go out and pray because it is ultimately the Lord's harvest, not theirs. And everything depends on the Lord's unlimited resources. So prayer may be the first and most important step, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. So let's continue on in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So Jesus told his disciples to pray for laborers, and here he tells them to be the answer to those prayers. Uh, I am sending you. So pray for laborers, and by the way, you're the laborers I'm sending. Right? And so uh, Annie Abwell said, so it is with you. We must pray, or so it is with us rather, we must pray earnestly, which means we must be prepared to answer the, be the answer to the prayers. He continues on, we cannot be faithful Christians without at least being stumbling evangelists. And see, you don't even have to get it right, just obey. It requires us to pray and to be humble. And Jesus says that he's sending them as lambs among wolves. That also requires prayer and humility. In the immediate context, Jesus might have been referring to the officials of the cities as wolves. Nevertheless, Jesus is sending the disciples out in a way in which they would be vulnerable. You see, 
we often like to kind of stay where it's safe, right? Kind of in our lane. But Jesus has not called us to survive. He's called us to sacrifice. And to prove that, he's sending them out with no provisions. And kind of like we saw at the beginning of chapter chapter 9, but this time he's telling them not even to bring sandals, which is an issue because we see that there's going to be scorpions and snakes, right? And they're going to have to trust that God's not going to let them be hurt. It's a picture of poverty and trusting God. So the second step in the mission is meekness. Step one in this mission is to pray earnestly. Step two is to go meekly. Notice that there's no preaching or work just just yet. It's just prayer and humility right now. Once again, the principles remain, but the methods can be different from Christian to Christian and mission to mission, because later on the disciples are told to take all those things that he told them not to take this time. And he includes that they're also to be armed as well, because things are going to get real, right? Luke 22, 35 to 36, he says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, because things are going to get rough, right? Uh, But that also doesn't negate the principle of humility, because Peter gets out, he's trying to protect Jesus, like, because you can protect God somehow. He's trying to protect Jesus. He cuts off Malchus's ear with a sword. Jesus puts the ear back on. Says, Peter, put that thing away. Right? It's not the time or the place for this. They're also told not to greet anyone on the road, which sounds really odd to me, being that their mission was evangelism. Uh, it may have been that there was an urgency to their arriving in these towns. could also have been to keep them from visiting relatives on the way, which would have stalled them. One way or the other, it illustrates that not all Christians are necessarily called to all people. Uh, we're, we're all called to some form of evangelism, but there can be different roles between us, and we need to be humble enough to accept that just because another Christian isn't doing it the way we do it doesn't mean they aren't following God. So steps one and two are uh, pray earnestly and go meekly. Let's go to verse five, Luke ten five. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, you, your peace will rest on them. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, we still haven't got to what we typically call evangelism. And that's because prayer, humility, and being at peace with people are all parts of evangelism that I think sometimes we miss. It's not just preaching. Let's let's look at the Great Commission here in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 for a second. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore, it says... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now look at that. Before we can be baptizing and teaching all the things that Christ taught, we have to make disciples. But in the Great Commission, Jesus doesn't say how to make those disciples. He just says to do it. In our text today, Jesus here is giving clear steps to doing it. See, because 
the Great Commission comes later. They've already been taught this, right? So here's what we're going to learn. Jesus gives clear steps to doing that, and we often gloss over the first three. We move right into the proclaiming piece. But without uh, prayer, humility, and peaceful relationships, our ministry to make disciples will likely be profoundly ineffective. God is, God is still going to do his work, but we'll miss out on the rewards of effective ministry if we cannot do these things. So step one is to pray earnestly. Step two is to go meekly. Step three, seek peace. Seek peace. Uh, Psalm 34, 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And Peter appeals to the Psalms in his letter. The first one, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, 9 through 11, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. See, it's an active thing. We are to pursue peace. Having peaceful relationships with people who are outside of the body of Christ is a Christian disposition. This is something that we're taught in the scriptures. Look here in Romans. Romans chapter 12. Verses 17 to 21, Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, leave peaceable, uh, leave, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Seek peace. The Lord Jesus is the Prince of Peace. How are we to be in his image if we cannot be at peace with one another and with those outside of the church? That word son of peace, anything son of and then something, it goes back to a Semitic and idiom that deals with the character of person of a person. So a person willing to be at peace, that's part of their character, um, that's a son of peace. Uh, Jesus called James and John, you might remember this, do you remember that he called them sons of thunder because they're kind of loud and obnoxious, right? Uh, so a son of peace will welcome them. Sometimes people will refuse to be at peace with you, and that's when you kind of have to move on. But when they're welcomed, they are to receive the keep that they're given and not to be on the lookout for better accommodations, because that wouldn't look very good. And we have similar concerns today. Uh, people often see churches as kind of always after your money. Have you ever heard that? They're always after your money. Uh, it's not true. We all know that's not true. Um, but there have been enough frauds out there fleecing the flock, people on TV and other places, uh, and the stigma just kind of sticks. I remember years ago my dad saying that um, about uh, Christian churches, and I was like, Dad, you're a well-paid cop. You get paid very well from the taxes that are taken from people. At least they pay me with what people voluntarily give, right? I, 
don't know, I thought that was funny. But, <laughs> but uh, David Garland said they're entitled to receive their keep, but they're not to become freeloaders. Now, I'll be honest, it, it's, it's, that's an uncomfortable, this is an uncomfortable topic for me. I don't like talking about giving and finances much in the church because my livelihood depends on God using your generosity to provide for my family. So I, I just, I hate feeling like I'm, at, you know, asking people to give so that I can get paid. We have part-time staff, uh, but Pastor Clint and I both work full-time, and, and we couldn't do what we do if we had to earn income elsewhere or had to supplement our income with other work. The real reality is that pastors across the board generally work more hours for less pay than any other profession with comparable education and skill sets. And by the way, I would say just on that note, thank you so much. Uh, just going back to what Clint said um, for your uh, Christmas gift to us. Um, it was just truly a blessing and uh yeah, really just, uh, really just blessed our socks off. So thank you um, for your love and your provision for us. Um, that said, there are those who fleece the flock. There are those who want to just take money and get rich off ministry, which is why people tend to be suspicious of pastors. In this text, Jesus says that the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul thought this was important enough that he quotes Jesus in his first letter to Timothy. Right here, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Let the elders rule well. Or let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And, and it's not only pastors. We support a lot of missionaries out there who would not be able to do the work that they're doing without the robust generosity of Idlewild Bible Church. So the, the sons and daughters of peace at IBC are graciously funding God's work around the world and right here in Idlewild. And, and it's something that, again, it's, it's often super uncomfortable for me to address from the pulpit. Um, but, but we have gone through a lot of changes here at IBC. And so it's doubly important that we are a church of cheerful givers so that the expenses of our ministry and our ministries around the world are cared for. Um, and I'm so thankful for guys like Josh. Josh is going to talk more about our budget and give you a picture of where we're at at our vision and planning meeting at the end of January. So um, that way I really can just limit my preaching about giving and stuff like that to where it pops up in scripture, like right here, um, or in this case about receiving, but, but, but keep giving generously because, uh, and, and see, see if God won't bless you for it. What Jesus is saying here though, I'm, just, I'm done doing the uncomfortable part now. <laughs> uh, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is he's saying to, to gladly receive the generosity of the people. But don't take advantage of them, right? Uh, the way that Jesus instructs them here makes it clear uh, that the mission is not about them, but about what Jesus has sent them to do. Um, and that goes for all of us. There, there, there's also an assumption here that, that they won't be welcome everywhere. So step one is pray earnestly. Step two is go meekly. Step three is seek peace. 
And then we're going to move on to, st- uh, on to step four uh, here as we pick up in verse nine. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Horosin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now finally we get to the part that we would classically describe as functional ministry. Anybody here ever painted a car? Have you ever painted a car? A few of you guys? Uh, I used to paint airplanes at the shop that I worked at in my late teens and 20s. Um, and, uh, and that was fun. Um, it, it, it doesn't take very long to paint an airplane uh, or a car. Most of the work that is done is the preparation, right? Would you guys agree? It's all preparation, right? One of the biggest airplanes I ever painted was a light twin. Uh, The painting was a few sessions of a couple hours over a few days, but it took well over a month to prepare that airplane to be painted. I think the same goes for ministry uh, a lot of the time. We we, we tend to, to, we need to spend time praying and humbling ourselves and seeking peace with people before we can get to the actual work of preaching and dealing with the substantial needs of the people. Also notice here that they're to do a whole lot more than just talk. I I wrote a little note in my Bible here uh, a long time ago. I don't remember when, but uh, it's right right next to this passage. It says, meet practical needs. You're not a spiritual guru who gets to couch surf and socialize for a living. Um, And and it's a good reminder. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not all good news. Good news includes bad news, right? We're sinners, and God's angry about sin. This is true. And the consequence of sin is hell. In other words, in your sin, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And since it is near, you are in a close, or, or you are close, rather, to a place of doom. But the good news is that Jesus died so that you may be heirs to the kingdom of heaven and not face the, the, uh, the doom. The bad news is uncomfortable to share. We don't like to do that. We don't like to acknowledge that God is a God of condemnation. But how does it make sense that we can escape condemnation through faith in Christ if people don't understand that they're condemned? It's important when a preacher or an evangelist calls out sexual immorality or laziness or anger, theft, covetousness, mistreatment and abandonment of children, rebellious attitudes, apathy towards worship services services or worship in the church, service to the church. These are acts of love to call that, that out, right? Because the kingdom of God is at hand is bad news to those who continue in those things. 
Those are the people who say, only God can judge me. You're right. Only God can judge you. And that should terrify you. Unless you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, God's judgment should frighten you more than anything else. This is how Paul put it in Romans 2, verse 5. He said, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is why we're called to preach the gospel. So once we've prayed earnestly and humbled ourselves and sought peace, we can move on to step four. Preach boldly. Preach, not just preach, preach boldly. And the, the reason we have to pray and to be humble and to seek peace with our audience before we can preach boldly is because effective gospel proclamation is hard. And, it, and if we work our way through the steps, there are a lot of people who reject us before we even get to the preaching. And, and that's not a failure on our part. But even when they reject, we are still to leave them with a warning. This is what it, it says. In this case, the disciples were to wipe the dust off of their feet and proclaim the king, that the kingdom of God is near. Notice that Jesus never says that if the people reject the gospel the disciples must have been preaching it wrong. You ever see that in the Bible? No. He never told the disciples they were doing a bad job if people don't respond. Do you realize the kind of freedom that gives us to follow Jesus? It's because the results are not up to the preacher. In fact, they aren't really up to the listener so much either. God is the one who produces the results. He is the Lord of the harvest. Romans 9.16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So James puts it another way. He says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, when we're participating in God's mission, we have no need of being afraid that we're going to mess something up. We can trust God to produce the results that he's willed in the first place. And if we are living missional lives, putting God's mission above our personal felt needs and comforts, we can trust God to do that which none of us is really ready and equipped to do in the first place. God calls us to do the work, but ultimately he is in control of the outcome. Now remember that God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon are repeatedly objects of God's wrath. And here, Jesus is saying that the judgment against the towns who reject his disciples would be worse than those. How does it feel to know that no matter how bad we might think we've messed things up, we can't upset God's plan, right? Like, we can't screw it up for God. He has our back, right? Like, have you ever had a boss that, like, when you mess it up, like, you have a boss, and you go and you make a mistake, and then your boss covers, and he says, don't worry, I got this. I got it covered, and he takes care of it for you. You ever had a good boss like that? God's even better than that. 
And this is why prayer, humility, and peacemaking come before gospel proclamation because those dispositions prepare us to rejoice in God's work. Jesus projects damning words to Capernaum. So much of the preaching and miraculous working of Jesus was in and around Capernaum, and they just didn't care. I think maybe they were like America in some respects. Our country has access to so much in the way of great literature and information regarding Jesus and the scriptures. There are more Bibles than there are people. Our churches are free to worship how they see fit. The Christians are free to evangelize and speak freely about the gospel. And when somebody tries to stop you, there are organizations like the Pacific Justice Institute that will take it all the way up to the Supreme Court if they have to, to protect your right to speak freely about the gospel. And yet, even among those who accept the title Christian in America, there are very few people that actually follow Jesus. Jesus said, the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's a lot like what we read when Jesus illustrated greatness with the child going, this is kind of going the other way, but look at this, uh, Luke 9, 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. One way or the other, they're to proclaim. But proclamation doesn't finish the mission. There's more. <laughs> one more step. Verse 17, Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, it wasn't just the 12 that Jesus used to do great things. He will supply you with the authority you need to accomplish his mission as your need arises. Notice that when Jesus fulfilled his mission through him, even though they no doubt ran into plenty of rejection, they returned to him with what? With joy. With joy. So we might ask ourselves if we have found joy in, in his calling on us so that when Jesus returns, he'll find us rejoicing. Step five is critical because the mission will fall flat if we are not rejoicing. Philippians 1.6, some of you have this memorized, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If we believe, if we believe that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it, we will be rejoicing because we always act according to what we believe. In fact, Paul wrote that passage from prison in his letter to the Philippian church. He's probably going to die, and he writes this letter to the Philippian church, and the whole theme of that letter is joy. Let's take a look at a few verses before that. This is his letter. He's writing from prison. Verse, starting in verse 3, Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you 
always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This was written from a guy awaiting the death sentence. You see, without step one and step five, the rest of our evangelism just falls apart. Prayer and rejoicing are the, the slices of bread that hold the sandwich of evangelism together. I'm hungry. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Remember those two things in your evangelism. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. So our five consecutive steps for effective evangelism are pray earnestly, go meekly, seek peace, preach boldly, and rejoice greatly. And look at what we're rejoicing in. Jesus says to them, he saw Satan fall like, 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 like lightning from heaven. There are actually three ways we can understand that. This could be the fall of Satan before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That would be past tense, right? It's spoken of in Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, 11 to 15. I'll just read it to you. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How, are you, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above all the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. A passage speaks of, some, speaks of something that began in the past, right? Jesus also here could be referring to uh, the submission of the demons to uh, the disciples in the name of Jesus, right? When the 72 cast them out, when they went on their mission, that would be present activity. And, and here's the thing about that. Is Satan winning now? If he is, how so? Jesus has authority over evil and gives that to us as needed. So Satan's already defeated. When we see supernatural evil on this earth, that isn't the success of Satan or the demons. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a temper tantrum because he knows he's doomed, right? Be, because we know how it ends. Satan is destroyed forever. And, it, and, it, and that's another thing that Jesus could be speaking of here too. In the end, Revelation 9.1, it says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Imagine if that's the only key you have. There's a lot of imagery in Revelation, so it's hard to understand what that all looks like. But, you know, and, and since it hasn't happened yet, we, we can only speculate on some of those things. But nevertheless, we know this. Satan is defeated in the end. He's defeated now. He was defeated when his pride destroyed him in the beginning. Christ is not only victorious in the end. Satan's defeat is continual. Every time we reject sin and serve God and trust the authority of Jesus in our mission, Satan is defeated. You, you all want to be a part of that? 
Amen, right? Jesus, Jesus has never come from behind. His final defeat comes in the end, but really, listen, Christ's victory is not an upset win like it would be if like the Jets made the playoffs, right? It, it's always been a goose egg. When we're on mission, his victory has been a sure thing all along. When we're on mission and evangelizing the lost, we've been, the, the, the ones that we've been called to, we can, we can rejoice because when we preach God's word, it will not return to us void. And when we seek peace, we will have it one way or the other. And when we are humble, we will see clearly to submit to God. And we will see that he has heard our prayers and is working behind the scenes. David Garland said this, our mission depends on awakening the great need or waking rather to the great need for others to hear the gospel and God's desire to gather them. It also depends on prayer, a sense of urgency and accountability to other missionaries, a clear sense of divine commission, a clear sense of the finality of the task of calling to others, calling others to repent, the blessing of others with peace, joy over success, and refusal to retaliate over rejection. But even at that, our rejoicing our rejoicing is in our relationship with God that we are heirs to the kingdom that is at hand. So I just want to close by feeding us a, a great sandwich here by giving us a recipe for effective evangelism that we can take home with us. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Pray without ceasing, right? Go meekly. Go meekly. Have some humility. Seek peace right? If, if there's going to be conflict, don't be the cause of it. <laughs> be the one who tries to prevent it. Preach boldly. Preach boldly. Don't be afraid to give the bad news with the good. And rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly because you are heirs to the kingdom of God. And go forth knowing that the work is God's work. He gives the orders, he produces the results, and all there is for us is to obey. Let's pray. Our, our holy God, we, we thank you that you have given for us to be here in this world for a purpose. Help us to carry out your great commission deliberately and consistently. Thank you that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest so that we may be free to obey without fear of failure because you will accomplish your purposes and you have permitted us to participate with you in the business of saving souls. Lord, help us to pray fervently and humbly as we seek to make peace around us and boldly proclaim the good news of your kingdom. And may we rejoice that we are not our own, but belong to you and that you are our provider and protector. Oh God, give us the good character that we need to live faithfully as your disciples and lead us into your mission field that is around us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.